0: Happy Friday. There, I said it, with more and more people vaccinated, going out to eat, catching up, and hugs are in play. But also, opening the lens out invites all of us to see this as a time not of a return to normal, but as a time of rebirth and parsing what we learned, thought about, and prepared for during the worst days of the pandemic. There have been many different kinds of experiences for different people and families. For some, it has been discovering the pleasures of being home. Time to think more deeply about the course of their lives. For others, it has been a time of uncertainty and even disastrous financial implications. But now I hope the coming months will be a time of discovery of new ways to live that incorporate the best of our time at home and also realize new opportunities opening up with the new administration's commitment to more equality and not only infrastructure improvements, but a new paradigm for work itself. Please join me for my conversation with Councilman Jay Banks who is very focused on our youth and how we can better prepare them for our new economy. This is of top importance as we look to achieving greater equality for all our citizens. Mr. Banks will be sharing experiences of his own youth that helped shape him as a leader. He wants nothing less for our youth. I want to come uh, sort of start from the beginning with you, and then we'll work up to the more recent challenges. So um, tell me about your earlier years and how um, you kind of shaped who you are as a leader. Uh, because, you know, developing leadership uh, skills and responsibility and, and commitments, willingness to be a leader takes a lot. And so I'm curious to know in, in your youth how that evolved.
1: I was blessed to have parents and grandparents and be surrounded by giants. And um, my mom most recently was honored as being the first, one of the first Blacks to get a degree from Tulane University. Um, but my dad was one of the founders of SCLC. He was one of the leaders of the civil rights movement here. And many of the meetings that took place with those civil rights icons took place at our house. And the giants that I was blessed to encounter, we did not know them as giants. We knew them as Uncle Israel and and Uncle Chink and, and, and the list goes on and on. Uh, the Reverend A.L. Davis Jr. was my godfather. And he was not this civil rights icon. He was Uncle Jack. So at the end of the day, I think that um, that exposure uh, as a child to that kind of power and leadership sort of seeped into my brother and I and manifested itself through, through where we are today. And the first political campaign I can remember working in was for uh, Judge Eddie Saper, who had an office on Perrette Street, and I was extremely excited. They gave me push cards, and my boundaries were I could not cross Claiborne, I could not cross Napoleon, I could not cross St. Charles, and I could not cross Jefferson, but they wow. placed a push card at every single house in that boundary on a bicycle, I was just so excited to do it. And I think that's where this, this bug, uh, th- this, this, this virus in me started with this uh, political stuff. And then moving forward, I had the pleasure and blessing to be hired by Dorothy May Taylor uh, to be mentored by Aretha Castle Haley. And you cannot be around those types of people Mm-mm. and not- pick up this need. And then further down the road uh, Singleton, who in essence, uh, who I refer to him today as my second dad. Um, the kinds of people that have been stalwarts in this community in terms of community service and trying to make this community better for all of its citizens have just been, been parts of my life throughout. And, and I cannot escape who I am or where I come from. And I think that's where it all started which is what got me here today. This, this, this being exposed to these people who were genuinely committed to trying to improve the quality of life for everyone, I think, again, just wore off on me. And I'm, I'm hoping uh, to one day uh, be an example for those coming behind me. If you walk in my office, the first thing you will see if you walk in my office is a plaque that says, I know that I stand on the shoulders of giants. And I promise that I will work every day to be the shoulders that many will stand on. And I believe that, and I work to that end every day because we are all in this together, and we've got to open the doors for those who come behind us, and we've got a path here for them. And that is what I'm committed to.
0: So it's one thing to have all that rub off on you and to be surrounded with it, and so, in some ways, the idea of leadership comes naturally. It's another thing to step up and and take that. Responsibility and 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 move through the various stages of it, especially with the inevitable challenges and disappointments and opportunities—the the whole mix. So I'm, I, I still want to kind of say, when did you and how did you decide that that you would step forward, not just, you know,
1: about uh, throughout, throughout this political. Uh, uh, journey in my life. I never had a desire to run for anything. I was fine being the kingmaker. I was good with being the guy crunching the numbers and devising the strategies and coordinating the GOTV efforts. I was good with that. And But it came down time to when this last election cycle came about, um, there were many that felt like we needed someone to be able to stand up and be a champion for for all the folks in the community and not just to see one side and it needed to be somebody who had the the internal fortitude to be able to stand up to the pressures. And um, I know that there were folks that were looking for a candidate and uh, they finally came around and said, Hey man, we can't get somebody else. We need you. And I said, I'm not interested, but after prayer and consultation with people who I love and respect, Said no. This this is probably what needs to happen. We need somebody that's going to going to be able to serve the whole district. This district B is very unique in that um, you've got the riches of the rich and the poorest of the poor. You've got very 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 educated, and you've got some that are illiterate. You've got an entire spectrum of every socioeconomic, racial, religious, uh, sexual orientation. You pick it. We've got that represented in District B. And um, I think we needed someone that could represent or at least hear and accept the conversations from all those different facets. And I guess the life that I've led uh, enabled me to do that. And I don't think God makes mistakes. So um, however this came about, uh, it's here now. And I hope that we've done a decent job since we've been there.
0: What, um, how do you see your achievements um, in, in the time that you're in office uh, playing um, a part in contributing to the future of the city? In other words, what what would you uh, specifically focus on in terms of those achievements that are the most important to you and that you're feeling good that you're going to be able to accomplish? We
1: have, we have We have gotten conversations that I'm not ready to spike the ball at any point. There is nothing that I feel like we have successfully completed. What we have done is we have moved the needle in terms of the ills that are facing all of our folks. And and COVID did not create the disparities it highlighted. COVID showed how real the disparities are. So the efforts to um, get these conversations going about increasing the minimum wage so the people that actually prop this economy up can afford to be here. The idea of, We've got active discussions and active efforts taking place right now to increase affordable housing. And it's one of the most frustrating parts about this journey is when I talk to people about affordable housing, this concept that affordable housing is somehow some kind of negative thing is just crazy. The reality of it is affordable housing encompasses police officers and postal workers and school teachers and, and everybody. And, and it's not just uh, this, this vision of a certain segment of the community, of a certain economic ill. The reality of it is affordable housing is something that we have to be intentional about because New Orleans should not be a gated community. It shouldn't be that, that just uptown is, is for all very rich affluent people who bring in folks from other places to support them. This community is, 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 is for all of us. And I'm excited that we have gotten that ball moved somewhat but again i'm nowhere near ready to spike the ball we talk about crime this whole idea about uh yeah i guess the the police are necessary but we will never arrest our way out of crime we've got to stop creating criminals the fact that we've got substantive discussions happening even putting money now into early childhood education is something that is extremely critical and important no i'm not ready to say we've done it no we've not but what we have done is we have at least got the conversations going and they will be ongoing to get to where we can spike the ball. Every single study that you read shows that children that get to school prepared do better. Certain kids go to school with a 10,000 word vocabulary. They finish all the way through high school and go on to college. Other kids that get to school with a 2,000 word vocabulary, sometimes it turned off by the time they get to the third grade. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to do the computation. If we prepare our children, they will do better. Now, let's flip the script. Investing in education makes far more sense than throwing money away in incarceration. When you look at what it costs to educate somebody and compare that to what it costs to incarcerate somebody, it's a no-brainer. We get value out of an educated working population, yet we spend way more money locking people up. It makes no sense. If we spend money early, we will avoid the responsibility of having to spend money late. Now. You are never going to make crime go away. I get that. But what you can do is you can eliminate the option or the likelihood of the option for so many people. If the option now is somebody making $7.25 an hour, or $7.50, whatever the minimum wage is, or $2 an hour plus tips, or going rob somebody, well, rob somebody is too close to the top of a choice. We need to make it so that these kids have the opportunity to go and make real money and sustain themselves so that the option of doing something nefarious like robbing somebody isn't a consideration ever right now that economic choice is too close to the top and until we address that i think we're going to be dealing with this so we've got to flip the script and start looking at this from the beginning when you talk about our kids We've got to be intentional. Whether or not you physically conceived them or they physically exited your birth canal, it doesn't make a difference. There's no force field around any of us. There's no there's no safe haven anywhere. We're all interacting with each other and we're all responsible for each other. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that anybody say that this is my biological kid, but whether they're biological or not, they're all ours and they all interface with us. And I think we ought to be engaging them positively because if not, there's a potential that we can be engaged negatively. We need to understand that. Support services are critical. You've got parents that are working. The disparity share to show it costs almost $18 an hour to have a minimum lifestyle in all these parents. However, we got folks working at $7.50 an hour. Now, how many hours you got to work to get to 18 if you ain't making but seven? All parents of bad children are not bad parents. Sometimes they gotta be there 14 hours a day working to keep the lights on and to feed them. So if you're at work, then you can't be home watching them. But if you didn't have to work 14, 15 hours a day, you could be a much more on-hands parent. Now, in those instances where we've got those folks that have to face bad lifestyle every day, then we ought to be intentional about having programs and services to keep those kids engaged after school programs, youth programs, I came from the to YMCA. You have to have something constructive for these kids to do to keep them focused and in a direction. It's not rocket science.
0: So I wanna just add to that because this is something that I feel extremely strongly. I really do not um, listen and focus on um, policing, criminal justice system, crime. I focus on education, just as you're saying. But uh, slightly, um, and I agree with you that early childhood has been proven. I mean, it's just the data, the facts are there. But the other thing that's really critical is that our um, kids in New Orleans, our students in New Orleans are prepared for the new economy. And that new economy um, involves um, a, a whole different set of skills than were important maybe t- even 10 years ago. So making sure that they're getting training in technology um, and I maintain and a lot of people that I, I know that I associate with I, I agree that the creative industries skills are very important because that's a growth industry worldwide and other cities and other parts of the country are chasing that hard. So are we preparing our students for this new economy, the technology, the creativity, um, the science. And so more and more you're hearing STEAM instead of just STEM. So it's all about science, yes, but it's, and technology, but it's also about the arts. And I even had um, a uh, work, somebody who works with students at Ben Franklin say to me, you know, it's now STREAM because he said it's, it's STEAM plus R for robotics. So there's a, an awareness, of course, of AI and the robotics and how, uh, what kind of a role those are going to play, and there's all kinds of issues sociologically with them. But they are also future jobs. So uh, how much have you been thinking about high school?
1: Well, let me let me let me first start by saying I am 100% in favor of educating our kids with new technologies so that they can be rocket scientists or robotic engineers or. Uh, creative, uh, folks do things with computers now that, that that folks couldn't dream of 30 years ago. I'm 100% in favor of that. But I think we don't need to ignore the fact, and I have never asked you this question, but I'm pretty sure that you know someone who's got a master's degree or a, a doctorate degree, or even a bachelor's degree that's underemployed, unemployed, but I'm going to guarantee you, you do not know one unemployed plumber. You do not know one unemployed electrician unless he uses so having those high tech opportunities i think are real but i think we lost something many years ago when we took vocational track vocational tech training out of the schools those jobs are critical too and i saw something that popped over the other day you got plumbers making 75 dollars an hour all right now if we ask, train, me how,
0: ask me how many listings I have in my directory for plumbers and electricians, yeah,
1: well, I, mean, I, we, I know what you're saying. Be able to to have those kinds of skills. Now, I'm not saying to ignore the 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 the, the Harvards or the Dillards or the two lanes of the world, but we need to be looking at more opportunities because every kid is not interested in doing that. But kids that get the ability to be able to sustain themselves end up being very successful. And and for some reason, we got away in thinking that somehow using your hands, there's something less than that. There is nothing wrong with that. And again, plumbers, electricians, those kinds of technically trained people have pretty good living. And nothing from steam, stem, stream, and all that other stuff, that's fine too. But let's not ignore that we're going to be needing all of those kinds of services. So we need to be intentional on preparing kids to do all of that. So if we've got some that that are, are inclined to be robotics engineers, no problem. But if we've got some that are inclined to be automotive mechanics, no problem with that too. There's nothing dirty about that. There's nothing negative about that. But for I, some- I
0: agree, with, I, it, I agree with you totally. I, 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 we, I agree with you and I understand. When we
1: talk about vocational tech training, somehow some people equate that, uh, put a stigma on that. That's crazy to me. As long as we educate our kids so that they can sustain themselves, as long as we give them the skills necessary that they can support themselves and their families, that's a win. If we graduate 500 people from ABC University and they can't get a job, what have we accomplished? All right. I gonna making- answer
0: that. I gonna I answer that. I totally understand what you're saying. I totally agree. I I, I certainly wasn't trying to, I, I don't have the attitude that those are not good skills to have. Um, I deal with more people in the trades than any other category. In, in fact, a, any homeowner does. But um, also what concerns me is, and, and I feel like I lost out on this in particular, personally, and that is training in business training in how to run a business training in entrepreneurship training in and not only ha- having that skill but but being able to have be your own business person and more and more we're trying to make sure that that our uh, folks are um in in uh, are in the lead and not um being subcontractors then they've got to be able to run businesses so to me I, it's crazy that we don't have Business training. I, I took. Oh my God, homemec. Okay, I'm 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 ancient, right? So I had homec I I didn't need homec Quite frankly, I'm not that interested in homemec. But I wish I had been trained in how to run a business because I'd be making maybe a dollar more or so than I am making if I was really a good business administrators. So that to me goes right along with the trades that you're speaking of, that the, um, the youth that are, are going into the trades, hallelujah. But the ones who really do well are the ones who figure out how, the, either they have the innate abilities or they have the trained abilities to run a business.
1: And I, again, I will, I will amen that. I think that this thing is multifaceted, but I also think that we have to step back and look at it holistically and that these kinds of opportunities ought to be a part of the matrix. It ought to not be a funnel where we're trying to get everybody to get into Harvard. Everybody doesn't necessarily want to get into Harvard. And I think that's one of the things we've missed with education. But then it's also, I want to throw something, when you talk about the Home Ec, Home Ec was a a lifestyle training um, curriculum. It taught you how to do certain things. One of the things that I think we've mostly missed in all of our educational system is financial literacy. We, we talk about That's teaching kids, about. but we haven't talked to them about money and how it works. Financial literacy ought to be a part of every school's curriculum. Uh, kids understand just how money works, how to make money work for you, and the problems you can run in if you don't use your money wisely, or the fact that you got to spend it in a way that benefits you in the long run. Financial literacy is, literacy is something that I think ought to be a core curriculum from elementary school, all the way through. So you're talking about preparing our generations. All of those things, I think, are critical and essential. Now, people tell me that I'm Pollyanna and I'm naive and I, I want to save the world and fight windmills. But the fact of the matter is that makes sense. And it makes sense to get our kids prepared to be able to deal with having to live a life once they get out of their parents' house. And financial literacy is a basic component of that.
0: Couldn't agree more, I really I really couldn't. It's hard though, isn't it, for you in, in with your scope of responsibilities as a council person to move the needle in the education field. How do you try to do that? How, how do you relate to the uh, people in education in, in, in a way that will have some impact?
1: It is extremely difficult and it is extremely difficult because you know, I get tagged with all the time that I'm not an educator, okay? I can see that, but I'm a very rational, logical thinking person. And the fact is, is that you've got folks that are dug in that have this vision or a path that they've got a degree in X, Y, or Z that says they're more qualified to see it than those of us who aren't. And I think that's where the wheels come off. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you look at it logically and rationally without any emotional attachment to it, some of these things that I'm talking about make sense. Now, I don't understand why the public school system has uh, has done as little as it has with early child education. I'm involved mm-hmm. in the process right now of trying to get that needle moved further. Hopefully, we'll be successful. I don't want to. I don't want to cast any aspersions on anybody. I can't undo what was not done. But what I want to do is make sure that we don't continue to do that. We've got to get that facilitated to help our children at the beginning. In addition to that. We've gotta continue the trajectory that, 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 that we started past just today. Early childhood education can't be a funded this year and then go away. It's gotta be a permanent part of what we're doing now. Do we have kids that are already past that? Unfortunately, yes. But we cannot again undo what was not done, but catching these new ones coming in, giving them a foundation that will allow them to matriculate through all of the school and then choose the path that they want. You may have a child that goes all the way through with that early child education, graduates cum laude and wants to go to to, to Dillard or Harvard or Yale or or Jackson State or wherever, but you also may have that same kid that decides, I know I can make more more money as a plumber or as an electrician. I want to do that and get my own electrical engineering business. But we've got to get them prepared to do that So again, the frustration is, is that it's not, it's not directly in my wheelhouse and as much authority as the city council has, in a lot of ways we have very little because we can't just make stuff happen. We might want it to happen, but unfortunately there's no button I can press to just say do this and make it happen. We got to work methodically at it. And sometimes it's frustrating because everybody you're trying to work with does not necessarily want to work with you it does not necessarily see it the same way this whole focus on early childhood is not a priority for a lot of people so i get a bunch of pushback but to me it is essential as, as, as air you get these kids prepared they're going to do much better
0: i appreciate your focus on this i think it's really important and um i, I hope that you are able to move the needle as you say um, let me talk about uh, with you some of the more, um, the other challenges of, of uh, being in the city council at this time. So we, we have a lot of um, challenges. Okay? So in, in COVID, it's been very interesting to see the, uh, the, the gap between those who have pivoted in a way that has opened a new uh, world for them. Um, I, I might, one of my favorite examples that I use a lot is a woman who was a hostess in a restaurant. She was laid off. Um, she started making, I, I think she had been making, but she started taking more seriously jewelry. And she opens up the back of her car on Bayou Road here in, near me and, and sells jewelry that she's been making. And she has tripled the income that she's not gonna do that every week, of course, but she has in some weeks tripled the income she was getting as a hostess at a, at, in a restaurant. Now, I, I'm not to put down hospitality industry jobs as an important sustaining factor in the income of, of people, but um, I, I'm fascinated by those who have figured out, oh, okay, well, now I can do this. And then those who have really um, suffered, uh, how how do you, what's your perspective on what you've been observing in the city during COVID and how do you see us coming out of this? So let's talk about the future as well as what you experienced during COVID.
1: The The folks that are, that have been able to pivot and the folks that have been able to do better, I am very happy for, but I'm also very frustrated for those that haven't. And I promise you for every one of those uh, people that figured out how to sell jewelry out of the back of the car. You got another hundred out there that did not have that opportunity or that skill set to make jewelry or even know that they could. So we've got a tremendous amount of our population that is hurting bad. I, Throughout this pandemic, we set up food distribution. And I can remember one of the most glaring stories. The weather was going to be bad one day. And we, we set up over at uh, Goodwill on Jeff Davis. And the weather was supposed to be really, really, really bad in the morning. So we moved the distribution back to four o'clock. There were people that were lined up out there before seven. We had folks, some of my staff went out to tell them, hey, look, we're not going to do this because the weather's going to rain. We're going to do this at four o'clock those people sat there until four o'clock. Now that indicates a real need. Now I have no doubt that in some instances you had some get overs and some hustlers that just came because it was free food. But for anybody that was in a position that they wanted to make sure that they had food that sat there from before seven till we actually started at about 3.30, but to sit there all day, that tells you the kind of need that was there. Yeah. We had lines that went from Goodwill up Tulane Avenue to Carrollton, back Carrollton, all the way across Earhart. We had lines that would stretch almost, well, the block in front of the seminary. And that kind of, of need, again, I think was real, because nobody's going to sit out there that long just to get over. Yeah. So we know that we had people that were desperately hurting. So I feel very, 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 I, I have much concern for them. I am praying and hoping that we get past this. I'm asking people every chance I get. Get a shot when you're able to get one. Wear your mask, wash your hands, social distance, and if you're sick, stay home. Because the only way we're going to come out of this is we've got to get this virus under control. Now, I'm not a big proponent of the rushing to reopen. Every single place where you've seen those efforts to reopen, yep. you've had a bounce back. Now, I am nobody's medical anything. But one thing, but you're going to show, add one and one and get two. And when you look at the fact that every single time the restrictions have been loosened, the number has gone up. When you tighten the restrictions, the number goes down. You don't have to be a mathematician or an engineer to see that. So with that, I'm not one of these people that's pressing to open. I think we need to have a total lockdown and get past this before we can come back and finally get back to where we ought to be. Now, the vaccine is going to be a big help. The more people that get vaccinated, the better, because, again, everything that we can do to stop the spread will bring this to an end sooner. Because this is like a hamster on a wheel, just constantly running in the circle. We aren't getting anywhere. I'm excited that we did take the actions that we did. Now, the mayor and all of us got all kind of heat because of the stringent restrictions that we put in place. But we know we save lives, and the benefit of that today is that we've got one of the lowest rates anywhere. All right. And and again.
0: I was talking with the mayor just before you, and I was telling her that I, I, I read the New York Times on in print. I'm just that, you know, old or whatever. And uh, I, tra- I track the maps that show you with the shading where things are worse and better. And uh, systematically, Louisiana has looked better than so many other states, especially those around us who have, have been just, you know, politically crazy in in and opening up completely and not calling for masking etc so um you know the again uh, as you said you can uh, you you can add 1 and 1 equals 2 and and uh, you can see it in the data and in what's happening that it works to to uh, to keep closed and to do vaccinations. Um, I, I'm hearing, you know, it, you get conflicting um, impressions about who's getting vaccinated and who isn't, and for what reasons. But there's been conversation about um, there being a resistance to vaccines in the Black community. Is that still true?
1: I think it's. I don't. I don't think that it's universally true, but I do know for sure that there is reluctance. Now, the fact that the Tuskegee Project is the one that everybody knows about, but that was just one. There were multiple times when Black Americans were used as guinea pigs or as lab rats. That is indisputable, but this is not that. And I am trying to get people convinced that it is an absolute necessary thing to do. And and for those that say, well, I don't think it's gonna work. Well, nobody's believing, that it's going to kill you. So COVID will kill you. So take the shot, and if it doesn't work, then okay. But if you get COVID, you got a whole lot worse situation to deal with. So I am strongly encouraging everybody to go and get it. And if it doesn't work, well, it certainly didn't hurt you. So I would think, though, that it is working with with, with the number of people that have gotten it. I don't know if anyone that has had an adverse effect. I'm very happy that Most of the people in my orbit have been vaccinated. I have been surrounded by this COVID from the beginning. 23 friends of mine have died. Oh, my goodness. Two of my staff members, I'm sorry, three of my staff members have actually contracted COVID. So I have been deluged with uh, COVID from the beginning. So I've got a keen appreciation for it and a real serious fear of it. So for those that accuse me of being overly paranoid, then I will gladly accept that because this has not been any game for me. And, you know, I talked to a friend who didn't know anybody that had died. And I tell him at that point, I had like 16 who had actually died. And at this point, that number is 23. And that is just something I don't think anyone ought to experience. the seriousness of this cannot be, it cannot be understated. This is real. And and I will be so glad when enough people do what we need to do to get out of it. And this, the ludicrousness of, of people trying to make this some political issue. It was a political issue. The, the, the lack of preparation, the lack of response, the fact that we had knowledge of this thing all the way back in September and this country did nothing to prepare for it, to pretend that it was going away, to dismantle. The, 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 the pandemic units, to do all of that craziness was political. The fact that it's here and killing people ain't. And the fact that we need to do what we need to do to stop it is not political. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we will get out of this sooner than later. Our economy is a tourism-based economy. We need people here. We need people doing what they need to do. But more importantly, New Orleanians are a social breed of people. We like being around each other. We like doing stuff. This is not the festival capital of the world just because, it's the festival capital of the world because we enjoy communing with each other. You think about it, we got a festival for everything. And that's because people like- potato
0: chips, for goodness sake.
1: (laughs) Got a festival, and if you name one that we don't have by you naming it, somebody will probably start preparation to get it done. That's right. All right. So, not only do I want it for the economy, I want this thing to end so that we can get back to being who we are and what we are. And right now, it is very frustrating that I, I, I saw you the other day, and if I had seen you in another period other than COVID, we would likely have hugged, but couldn't. I hadn't seen you in years and then bump into you in a restaurant, all yeah. right? But we would have hugged. Yeah. And that yeah. that just, it's, 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 it's inside of all New Orleanians. Yeah. How
0: do you see us, um, l- l- let me go forward. Um, h- how, what's your vision or hope or uh, strategies for how we emerge from this? H- how, how's your view of New Orleans as we, uh, we're not gonna be, ever, I I suspect what I'm hearing, completely rid of this, but we are gonna move out of this crisis phase and we're going to um, develop, let's call it a new normalcy because I don't think the old normalcy has returned. We don't go back, we go forward. So how going forward, what does that look like to you?
1: It looks like, and I'm gonna be, uh, uh, I don't wanna be, be, be crass, but New Orleans is the best place to be if you got anything to have to overcome. So at the end of the day, if the new normal is wearing a mask, I promise you there'll be a mask festival, all right? We will be doing what's necessary to get through this to make that new normal workable. Now, what that is gonna manifest, we still don't have the answers to this because the virus is writing the script and the virus is still writing. So until we know when the end of this is, we don't know how to adjust to be able to live after it's over, because it's not over yet. But I'm promising you, that we gonna have whatever's necessary to get through it. Now, hopefully between the vaccines and the mask wearing, I heard the studies too, that COVID will never go away, but hopefully we will get it under control enough that we can do Mardi Gras, we can do Jazz Fest, we can do Voodoo Fest and Second Lines and all of those things that we love to do that allow us to interact. But it may require that we do them with a mask. It may require that, that instead of having 90 people on the Mardi Gras float, we only put 60. We don't know how it's going to end up because we aren't at the end yet. But I'm promising you whatever that takes, New Orleans will make the adjustments to be able to deal with it. I'm promising you that. We are the most resilient community anywhere. Our folks can overcome anything and have demonstrated that. And we are going to do what needs to be done to get through it. I just can't give you the answers how it looks, but however it looks, it's going to be better here than it's going to be anywhere else.
0: I hope you're right. Um, we we've been uh, communicating lately a little bit about um, a live amplified music around the city. So I can't. Um, uh, I, that's not the focus of our interview, but I can't uh, have an interview with you and, and and miss addressing that because this is kind of on your shoulders. You you again have kind of taken on some leadership in in this regard, and so. Um, I think that um, there's a question about the plan that came out of city planning commission. Uh, Some folks in town and the neighborhoods are concerned about it because it does not appear to address the issue of reducing impact in residential areas on residences that might be near Um, venues that have the right to have live music and um there are some of us who are looking at this how, how do we do this proactively how do we develop a programming approach that allows and encourages live music around the city and encourages musicians to be able to work again but does does no harm does not really um Impact the neighborhoods. I'm not sure I'm completely clear on the process, but I think it would be uh, important for the audience to hear okay, how's this going to go forward? And how do we try to deal with it in a way that is um, more more thought through and programmatic rather than what exists in that plan to date, which to me uh, personally, quite frankly, looks like deregulation uh, the way it's written. So, tell right, me, what's your perspective on this?
1: My perspective on this, and I cannot speak for the other six colleagues i can only talk about me i know that the plan is not perfect and it has certainly not been finalized i think that there are going to be tweaks to it we've got to be we've got to understand that live music is as real in new orleans as is gumbo and seafood so live music has to be here but we also got to understand that the residents who live here make this city what it is so somewhere between those two ends is the sweet spot that we can have to work towards to be able to make the live music work. I don't live next to a music venue, so I cannot personally talk about it. But I grew up around the corner from one that uh, wasn't, it was a, a, a bar called the Red, Dra- Red Line. And I know that it definitely had negative impacts on the neighborhood. So I come from a position that I certainly don't want to go back to putting that kind of pressure on neighborhoods. But I also know that we've got to be able to make sure that this culture survives and a major part of that is the music. So um, the plan is going to be tweaked. It is going to be amended. And I'm pretty sure that at the end of the day, we'll have something that is closer to being palatable to all sides than what it is now. Nobody in a situation like this Walk away with 100% of a win, because I get it that the music needs to happen, but the people that live there got to be able to sleep and get up and go to work. So there'll be there'll be a meeting somewhere in the middle between those ends. And again, I'm speaking specifically for me, but I got to believe that my colleagues will be of the same mindset.
0: What? Um, thank you for that. <laughs> and um, you know, as I said, I I hope that we can actually advance live music by doing it in a way that is programmatically supportive without doing damage. So that ultimately, I think that's what most people feel. There's nobody who lives in the city of New Orleans who doesn't want to promote and develop and encourage um, live music, I, I think would be fair to say. And um, I'm
1: gonna dis- Because, uh, you know, I've gotten that, <laughs> uh, you know, this got to go. So um, there are areas in District D that um, that are historically Um, frequented by um, not only music, but other cultural events. And then there are residents that live near those that say, you got to shut this down. So I'm going to disagree with you that there is nobody, but there are a few, but I think the majority of the people understand that that is an integral thread in the fabric of New Orleans that we cannot afford to let go.
0: What do you personally hope most to achieve through your public service um in generally in general not just as a council person but in whatever is your next um iteration of your public service life what do you most i, I mean i certainly heard early early childhood and dealing with empowering people to have uh, the full lives that they should have i heard that um how would how how do you want to close our uh talk we are coming up in the end of it and and tell me what do you what are you hoping to get done
1: what I'm hoping to get done, and it may sound very Pollyanna, but the fact is, I hope to leave it better than I found it. I hope that uh, the efforts that I've been involved in have made it possible for folks to, to achieve more than they would have if I had not been here. I hope to be able to leave a legacy that uh, will perpetuate the idea that I stand on the shoulders of many, and I hope the efforts that I have put forth will be the shoulders that many will stand on. So it may be Pollyanna, but that's what I work towards every day. It's about uh, passing it on and taking sure the folks that come behind us have an opportunity to succeed what we did way, way, way bigger and better than what we ever did.
0: Thank you for that. And I just have to add a little footnote and say that one of the shoulders that I stand on that I, th- I heard you say that you do is uh, the first person who I really worked closely with when I came to the city doing political work was Aretha Castle Haley. I was a very lucky, lucky woman to um, uh, fall into her realm. And uh, we we had breakfast almost, um, I I don't know, two, three times a week at a little diner near the office where we were running the McGovern campaign. Um, That's how I came here initially. And um, she was my mentor. And uh, it broke my heart, truthfully, when we lost her too early. And um, I, I still think of her as, as just so wise and so intentional. She actually hired me to do the television media for Dorothy Mae Taylor. So I had an opportunity to work with her as well. And um, uh, those, the shoulders that we have in this town are really amazing and significant and thank goodness for them and thank goodness for the shoulders that are working for us right now, such as yourself. I look forward to um, talking with you from time to time. I hope this isn't the last uh, interview, but I also hope to work with you in other ways, especially in my area of interest, the creative industries. Thank
1: Thank you you. very much.
0: Bye-bye. Amazon is increasingly in the news for inhumane labor practices. Um, I, for one, hate the idea of trading live experiences in stores with human beings, with other people, for shuffling packages in a dark warehouse. Uh, But worse than that, they just don't don't make it easy for people to to work uh, and benefit from their work. So, me saying it is one thing, but I want you to hear from someone who's actually um, an expert in labor relations. She's not necessarily uh, um, uh, someone who's worked in an Amazon plant at any time in her life, but um, she knows a lot about what it means to be able to um, organize and um, get better conditions for workers. So, with that introduction, we're going to go to Erica Zucker.
2: Hi, my name is Erica Zucker. I am the policy advocate at the Workplace Justice Project, which is a section of the law clinic at Loyola Law School in New Orleans. Um, and my interest is that this is this is the kind of work that I've been doing for my entire career. I spent almost eighteen, almost a little under about eighteen years practicing labor and employment law, always on the worker side, in California, doing everything from representing unions to representing individual workers to working in house at a union and, in fact, helping to organize a staff union. Um, and now I do policy work focusing particularly on um, the issues affecting workers working for low wages and in invulner- and vulnerable workers in Louisiana. Okay.
0: Well, that takes us right to our subject. And that is um, the Amazon workforce and the uh, uh, Amazon work policies. And um, I, I just like to, um, I don't have a very good image of, of all that. I, I, I picture people, um, basically buried amongst boxes in a big old dark warehouse when they could be in a friendly neighborhood um, and retail environment uh, or, or restaurant or other place where they mix with people and have a life. So I'll just you know, be honest about my, my feelings about this and therefore I, I do not use Amazon and I don't even want my tenants to although they get packages all the time from there. So um, what is your perspective on this?
2: Well, I mean, I don't I don't have first or even secondhand knowledge of Amazon workers and the work situation. I know what everybody else knows, reading and seeing and hearing it on the Internet about, you know, workers having to work under terrible conditions and being really held on a time clock and, and not being given time to take care of uh, personal necessities um, and not or having to go
0: to the bathroom.
2: Right. Those are the sort of personal necessities I'm I'm talking about, and being forced to work in really difficult conditions, and basically just being you know robots with a pulse um, is how I have occasionally heard it described. Um, And I I as a consumer, I certainly see the issue of what Amazon and that kind of you know remote delivered to your door retail. has done and has the potential to continue to do to our local businesses, to the individuality, to entrepreneurship, to the fact that I like to go into my local bookstore and have a conversation with the people that own it and the people who shop there and have have an interaction with people that doesn't happen with the so-called convenience of finding something online clicking a few times and, and having it come to you. Um, and what that means for the local economy and the, and the global economy, I think that there's, there's a real disincentive to how important it is to our humanity to have a relationship with, with the people who provide us the things we need to make our, work, our lives work.
0: What what is going on in a way of um, trying to help uh, those people who are working um, with Amazon to mitigate the the, uh, work uh, circumstances that they're living with?
2: Well, the the one that's getting the most press right now has been that there has been an effort among the workers at the Bessemer, Alabama, uh, I guess, Amazon calls it a fulfillment center. It's a giant warehouse where they put all the orders into into boxes and ship them off, they have, are, as we speak, the votes are being counted in the union election that just took place there, the votes were, happened over the last month or so. Um, and you know, that has the potential to you know, make give those workers an actual voice in how their working conditions are, what their working conditions are, what their rate of pay is, you know do they have time you know do they get breaks do they get a say in what shifts they work i mean unionization means that there's a group of workers who get to sit down with their bosses at a table and figure out what what their workplace is supposed to work how our workplace is supposed to work and what happens when it doesn't
0: so i i think is you know it's interesting that Really, if you look at unionization historically, in the beginning, what was important was mitigating really bad working conditions during the early phase of the Industrial Revolution, so-called. Um, secondly, it was really um, a factor in creating a, a middle class. It, it helped manufacturing uh, workers Um, be paid at a rate that allowed them to have a home, uh, send their kids to college. Um, So when manufacturing jobs um, were allowed basically to move offshore, and I I understand that um, you and others feel that a certain amount of globalization was inevitable. I'm sure that's true. But at the same time, we basically allowed our entire manufacturing um, ecology, was the word you used, um, evaporate before our very eyes and all the jobs that went with it and the middle-class incomes. In the meantime, uh, the labor movement gained some black eyes because of people who inevitably with power um, uh, get corrupted on on occasion. But what happened as often again happens in the um, media news world is that the entire movement got painted with um, a black brush uh, which wasn't really appropriate. But at this point in time, I, I feel like there's a new view if, if developing of the lab, of labor, of unionization and um, and uh, the value it can have not only in say an Amazon-like setup, but also in some of the big tech um, monopolies, the Googles and Facebooks and so on.
2: Well, I, th- I think the thing to remember about, about unionization and organizing workplaces is that it's always been about giving workers power in relationship to their employers. And you know, all that other stuff, union bosses and union dents, you know, all of those things are true and, and are stories that need to be told in the history of the labor movement and of labor and employment in this country. But the fact is that the reason that bosses stand up against unionization is they don't want to give their workers power. And the reason that workers need to band together to form a union is because one one worker or five workers or 10 workers or even 50 workers does not have as much power in a bargaining position as an entire workforce working together to determine what those conditions are. And so I think that what we're seeing now is workers are once again realizing that they need to take that power so that they have some control over, the ter- over what their work lives are like.
0: How, how, how can uh, consumers um, relate to this? How can they make a difference in the equation? In my view, um, I don't think we should be buying products through Amazon. So for me, I just don't. I, I have no trouble finding what I want either in stores locally, or if I want a product that I can't get at a store, I call the manufacturer of that product and get them to send it to me. And that's not so hard. So I'm not necessarily putting more pennies in, in um, Jeff Bezos's pocket. It really offends me. So I mean, uh, let me just you know, put it back in neutral and ask, okay, what, what, what
2: is the consumer's role? I, I, think, I think you spoke really well, Jean, to the consumer's role. I think consumers, the consumer's role is to speak with their pocketbooks and their actions and when, a, when they can and when it's appropriate to inform the businesses that they are doing business with and the businesses in some cases like Amazon that they're not doing business with, why they're taking those, those choices. I do Thank think that know. supporting local businesses, and you know, I try to do the same. Try to do exactly the same, same thing. I try to support local businesses. I try to su- to support small local businesses whenever I can, because I know that those those that money is more directly going into the local economy, and I can see its effects. But even where I where I have to go to a bigger which, establishment, oh, sorry, which... I do try to go to an actual store where people are standing there and working. Um, right.
0: And, and also the other the other ramification of this is that um, sales that are based at local stores contributes to the funds that a, a, a city government Absolutely. has available Absolutely. To, to provide the services we need. Local,
2: you're but, paying um, sales taxes and that's going to your local economy. I,
0: I like the connection you made though. I, you know, I, I refuse to buy Amazon products, but I've never sent a letter to somebody in the PR office at Amazon saying, I'm not buying your products because, and, and that's the second step I can take. And I, I appreciate that recommendation. Um, Erica, you and I have a lot more to talk about going forward in, in history and life and my show. Um, but uh, we had just a limited uh, window for you today. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking a moment uh, uh, n- not with not a lot of notice to talk with us. Is there a point you want to make before we finish?
2: I just want to say, well, thank you again for having having me on, Jean. And I just want people to understand that that if you're watching the Amazon vote count, it is going to be a very long process. And the other thing you can do is where workers are organizing locally. Please. Talk to them, find out why they're organizing and what is going on in their workplace and support their efforts.
0: And bye local. (laughs) Bye local. Thank you, Erica, so much. We'll talk again. Thank you.
2: Okay.
0: So long, sad times, go long, bad times. We are rid of you, Howdy,
1: gay times, cloudy grey times, you are now a thing.
0: to remind our listeners that we put out a newsletter every Thursday evening or Friday morning. The newsletter includes information on the upcoming show's guests, but also a lot more including news aggregated from other publications such as the New York Times, coming events and attractions and images from events and places around our region. To be added to the mailing list, email your email to crosstownconvo at gmail.com. That's Convo at gmail.com. This is your host, Jean Nathan, for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK 1230 AM, what people are talking about.